as technology advances, digital tools such as social media, cell phones and satellite imagery have opened up new avenues for documenting incidents of human rights violations. This has been absolutely crucial in facilitating justice for victims of war crimes and crimes against humanity. The use of digital evidence in criminal investigations has been particularly helpful in verifying the atrocities of what may have happened, including the time and location, who the victims were, and finally prosecuting those who may be responsible. Here to discuss the effectiveness of digital evidence in documenting war crimes and crimes against humanity to ensure that those who commit these atrocities are in fact held accountable and to provide insight into the daily challenges encountered when utilising these digital tools is Bethany Houghton, Assistant Counsel at PILPG. Bethany, thank you so much for joining us on Making Sense of Tech War today. Just to start, digital evidence is more visible online. It's made these sort of crimes more visible, but how, how has it increased accountability or has it increased accountability for human rights abuses and crimes against humanity? Thanks. Uh, thank you, firstly, um, for having me and for inviting me to be on the podcast. It's great to be here. I would say that it's quite difficult to answer this idea of digital evidence increasing accountability for war crimes and human rights abuses. There's not really a, a direct relationship uh, between the two, but I do think that they are quite linked because you have on the one hand awareness raising, such as in Myanmar, you had all of the digital evidence, all of the social media posts, videos, pictures being distributed so widely in the immediate aftermath of the attacks in the Rakhine state in 2018. And with that, you had the push to, towards accountability. So there's a kind of indirect relationship there. But then there is also the, the question of digital, and that, that would be digital information, but then there is this, this idea of digital evidence. And I don't think yet we're seeing digital evidence increase accountability. And I think the yet is really important especially in, in the International Criminal Court and International Criminal Justice, there is a tendency um, and a history of witness testimony being favoured. But we are seeing changes in that. For example, satellite imagery being used, open source um, information being used. Um, but, but it is, the tide is turning um, and it's changing and, and it's, it's moving forward. But I think this, this direct relationship isn't there yet. But... Um, international criminal justice moves very slowly. So we'll, be, we'll see in the future, in the, in the upcoming years, especially with the recent uh, war crimes, recent crimes against humanity, when you have all of this digital evidence uh, from the very beginning. Um, so I think watching uh, Myanmar, watching Syria and Iraq, watching these situations, we'll see in the, in the upcoming years whether digital evidence does indeed increase accountability. So, so those crimes committed in those particular locations, do you see that as kind of almost a generation of test cases to see how far digital evidence can really be used? I would say not necessarily test cases. I think that they will definitely be very crucial, very important cases on a wide range of legal issues, whether you, you could argue that that is in and of itself a test case. But I think that there'll be really in crucial jurisprudence in the future. If everything, if, if and there's a big if, if there is an increase in digital evidence being used, do you think that's a frustrating thing that a lot of people who are looking at these crimes, watching the videos on YouTube and seeing the news articles, aren't necessarily seeing that translate into a conviction or a prosecution? And for us, 
looking on at the rise of digital evidence, is that something that we need to work towards making happen? Or is that just a frustration that's going to be a long-term thing? I would say that the issue is that the path towards accountability is just slow. Um, and part of that is to do with the way that international criminal justice works with the, with the preliminary examination, investigation, with the prosecution phase. It's slow and it takes its time. Um, I would hesitate to say that being able to see the videos makes it worse because for the people who experience um, war crimes, crimes against humanity, for the victims and survivors and witnesses, of course they can, they can see it, but it's always been a part of their lives, whenever, whether it was happening prior to um, smartphones and, and pictures and videos being a big part of people's lives. So it's, it's always been there and I, and I think that it's, the problem is more with international criminal justice and the time that it takes. But when you say that, you always have to bear in mind that the reason it's so slowly is firstly there is an element of politics in this and, and also the legal structure of international criminal justice. You've got the complementarity principle that the court has to go through so many hoops before it can actually get to a case. Um, similarly, the, the domestic level, there are just certain hoops that the prosecution has to go through. Um, and part of that is also to do with defendants' rights and fair trial. It's just such an interesting time because, I mean, as we saw in the US, you know, there's around the election, um, the question of whether the election was rigged or not, and the, the numerous lawsuits that have been thrown out for, for lack of evidence, how people then kind of vent on social media and how social media has become this kind of forum to replace those justice mechanisms that people once kind of held trust in, don't you think? The, the election is fascinating, but I also think um, from, from the way that I say it, you do have these parallel conversations between the people and, and justice and, and the people in and amongst themselves, and that these conversations have historically happened, and that the, the consistently have been people who will engage with courts, and then people who prefer to protest, or they prefer to just not engage formally at all. Um, and all of these are legitimate forms of, of political action, of, of legal action, but the way that we're seeing it, and that what I think is interesting is the way that we use social media and the fact that everyone can see it in a sense. It's like, you know, kind of if you're on Twitter, everyone can see your feed and you can engage with anybody. Whereas previously our conversations were much more limited to the people that you had in your immediate environment. The, the cases were quite different um, that were brought, the challenges that they, they were pretty weak challenges without evidence. So they were quite easy to, to throw out in, in contrast to a video of a war crime happening. It's, it's much more difficult to deal with these issues and these, these cases. And I also think that there's a whole structure surrounding elections in the US. And so that there's, there's already the structure to deal with, with those issues. So I, I think they are a little bit different, but there are so many parallels as well. Of course, of course. It was kind of, a, it was kind of an interesting tangent, I guess, to think about how this whole interplay between the rise in social media and the amount of evidence that we have is now becoming a thing of itself regarding sort of major world events and how they, how we choose to sort of resolve our disputes with each other. And um... what is really interesting, what you see right now is the open source investigation world looking at the storming of the Capitol building. I don't know if you've seen that, but there's a few people on Twitter who are crowdsourcing information and that they're identifying and they're identifying some of the individuals who are key players um, and then they're passing that information onto the FBI. And this is all using crowdsourcing um, open source investigation techniques and you're seeing it happening in real time. That's something that is very related in terms of 
it's not you know a crime against humanity or a war crime but it's a serious issue it's a serious crime and they're they're, they're investigating it right now um on twitter and what is happening is what people do usually do behind closed doors quite often is being is happening um in the open and i i, I maybe misspoke because i think a lot of open source investigation is done openly and there is a crowdsourcing but because of the the high profile nature of the capitol building being stormed is that you have all of the so much attention being being put on it as well so um i wonder if you could explain just a little bit more about what your project is that you're running with pilpg and what the aims of it were so with regards to human rights documentation pilpg has been in the documentation space for quite a while either doing our own documentation or helping other organizations with their documentation um, for example in 2018 PLPG sent a group of investigators to um, Cox's Bazaar um, and conducted over a thousand witness statements, uh, interviews with victims and witnesses in response to the events in the And because of PLPG's work in this space, there was a recognition the solutions, the technology used by human rights documenters could be improved. Um, and so that's how we came about this project and what, we, what we're doing uh, with the Human Rights Documentation Solution, Solutions Project is in the first phase, we did a needs assessment partnering with Heredox and the Engine Room to really assess what the technological needs of human rights documenters are. And that was published in November of 2020. And then what we wanted to do was follow up and work with a techn technology team to either develop or to create a technological solution that addresses the needs of human rights documenters. And then finally, in the third phase, we will be training a group of human rights documenters on the development of the, of the tool uh, that comes out of our project. So it's about using technology to overcome the really difficult problem of recording human rights abuses and crimes against humanity in a way that can then later be used by accountability mechanisms. Indeed, 100%. And just for the listeners as well, human rights documenters, they're actually a super broad and diverse group of people, right? So there you've got um, actually people who might just witness something and want to record it on their smartphone versus quite organized civil society organizations. So it's quite a broad a broad group of people you had to cater to, right? Yes, um, 100%. So you, like you say, you have the people who come across it and download a certain app so that they can take pictures or videos in a way that is uh, preserving and maintaining the information so that it can be put forward to international uh, criminal justice or, or human rights mechanism. Um, but then you do have these, these organizations in the report um, and in the research we did um, respond to that those those differences by separating out the different types of organizations into grassroots and more um, experienced uh, documenters and does that mean developing bespoke solutions to those to those groups that's a great question because i think you, you there's there's different answers and i think um one of the things that comes out of the report is that what is needed is um an ecosystem of tools um, and so not tools that kind of do it all, and, and that, but tools that do one job, one part of the, the, the documentation cycle. 
um, and also kind of different versions, different tools, maybe with different audiences. Um, so I would say yes to bespoke tools that address the different needs of different types um, of users of, of documentation tools. Um, and, and, and this is kind of what you're seeing is that some tools are good for collection uh, and they're specialized to collection of evidence and other tools are more looking towards analysis. So that would be the bigger organizations who have, after they've accumulated so much of this digital evidence, and they would like to, to analyze it to see what is actually going on. Um, and that is something that is generally done by organizations. Um, but if you want to have people on the ground, um, lay people, then they would be using, uh, primarily would be using a collection app. Of course, if you develop these apps, it could become a signpost for a repressive government if someone has that on their phone to sort of arrest them or to sort of silence them. Yeah, no, it's 100% a, a huge issue. And, and what tool developers really are doing, uh, I mean, is what they're doing is that they are hiding the, the app. So if you have it on your phone, it looks like a calculator, but really it's actually a documentation camera, for example. Um, and that they, that tools can have um, the ability to wipe the data. So that if the, if there is a documenter in the field and that they are coming up to a checkpoint and that they know that this is a huge risk and that they've got all of this data on their phone, all of these pictures, all of these videos, that they can go in and quickly uh, wipe all of, all of that data so that they're not putting not just themselves at risk, but also the people who, are appear, who appear in these um, photos and these videos. It's such a complex challenge, isn't it? I mean, there's a delicate balance between generating publicity and making sure that people know about these apps, but also trying to be secretive about how they function. When something happens, people need to be able to record in a way that is useful and ensures their safety, but how are they going to be aware that these apps are even available for them to use? Right, that's, um, that's a great point. I think um, it, it depends as well, because what you have is sometimes you have a protracted crisis where the authorities will be very knowledgeable uh, about the different apps, or they can generate that knowledge, but then if you have um, a more general situation of a human rights abuse where the, the general um, police that are in, in, a, in, a, in a city, for example, if we're talking um, not just about crimes against humanity or war crimes, um, but on just general human rights abuse, you can look at police brutality um, across the world, that the average police, uh, police officer doesn't know these, um, know what the tools are. Um, and so this is kind of the, the issue is that they can be publicized more widely in, in kind of these situations, but in a protracted crisis where there are around, then they, they, and that there are surveillance. And I think especially with human rights defenders, if they are very public about their work as well, um, sure. that they, they are a, a huge risk um, because the work that they're doing, because they are under surveillance. Um, the, the kind of, there is no real solution to this. It, trade-offs and it's all about where what is the individual situation of the human rights defender and what to be created and developed for certain groups of people what are um, the key trade-offs do you do you think in your view what are the what are the key trade-offs involved in developing an app that can really collect evidence that is then useful i would say so 
security and usability is is a trade-off that keeps returning and we and, and kind of keeps coming up and that we keep talking about um because solutions that are secure not international criminal justice not just on, on an effect of preserving evidence but also really for the people um for the documenters for for the victims for the witnesses um so security is really of the utmost importance across the board but then you also have this usability and the difficulty i guess here is that there have been tools that have been made that aren't particularly usable because they've gone so far to security and then if the mission of documentation is not being achieved because the tool is secure then are you meeting the objectives and then if usability is is such an issue that people are using workarounds or the actually ending up using less secure then again the the documentation is um so for me this is kind of the, the crucial um trade-off in human rights documentation solutions and i think it's it's, it's a trade-off that's present across tool development but it's, it's so heightened because security is so important in this field um and that you have your way that's actually such so when one of the really interesting inter intersections of this project is that mixture of app development and 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 law and i just wondered if do you guys agree on things when you're talking to a computer scientist or are there sort of points where you find that your approaches to things are diverging with how perhaps they would develop something but as a lawyer you're bringing something uh you're you're sort of bringing a different perspective to what, to they, what they would do yeah, so within this project, what is really cool is that we, um, for the needs assessment, we worked with Hiridots and the engine room, uh, and then PIOPG. So it was um, three different organizations with that strive towards the same goal, but we had these different perspectives. Um, and there was a few moments where we, where we had the, we brought our different perspectives. But for me, I don't see it as a challenge because it's more sounds a little bit cheesy but it is more of a learning moment and when you see all of these different perspectives you can build on them um and and it's interesting to in, in a serious way just to figure out how you can move toward. um yeah i'm just, i'm thinking about one of the examples that we that we that we've had is, is yeah. our discussions around um chain of custody um and what it means what it but it basically what what does it mean to be secure for data to be secure um, and what how lawyers think about it was different to how computer scientists think about it and it's about kind of bringing the different perspectives together because if you're using documentation as tools for accountability you have both of those perspectives that you you are not just dealing with perspectives but you're de dealing with the um, and when you are bringing them together that you need to have those conversations so that you can ultimately achieve accountability achieve justice um, you know that doesn't live in a really is true and the, these conversations they really they highlight, highlight that, that lawyers and oh sorry yeah oh no i was just gonna ask so do they do the developers have a different perception of chain of custody custody that that yeah than, than a sort of typical lawyer would um so with regards to chain of custody um the the kind of the discussion was was primarily about what lawyers thought was safe um the people with the tech background thinking well actually that's not safe that's sorry it wasn't so much a different idea of what chain of custody means because chain of custody of course is a legal term sure. but it was this idea of how we 
can have chain of custody, how you can say that something um, has been stored securely, that we had different of opinions of what that is. And of course, at a certain point, the lawyers have to kind of brush up on, on, on kind of our technical knowledge um, in terms of what actually secure data security is. So that when we do make these claims, when we do say, oh, data needs, this process is correct, that we are saying something that, that is, that has sense to a computer scientist. Yeah. So they were discovering that certain, certain moments in the, in the data cycle were leaving the evidence out in the wild, right? And potentially breaking that chain in a way that lawyers typically wouldn't perceive. Yes. Yeah, so, so that is kind of the, the data being out there in the wild at a certain point was, is the, is the big concern. Yeah. Kind of account. I mean, so, so far we've been talking about accountability mechanisms kind of in a broad sense, but actually there are such diverse mechanisms that this information could be used in. Is there, I mean, there's, there's no universal app that's going to meet all the different evidentiary standards of supranational bodies and then domestic bodies. Um, hundred percent that there, there, there are a plethora of different mechanisms. And I think there's also, you know, we have to kind of also take into account that not all human rights documenters do pursue formal accountability, formal accountability uh, in the terms of international criminal justice, human rights. Um, sometimes advocacy and awareness raising is also um, the goal of documentation. And, and when it comes to that, there are there is a much lower threshold in terms of um, evidence. What I think we're well, but with the with the way that digital evidence is being stored and with the with the development of digital evidence, is that there is the potential for um, the evidentiary standards of different legal systems to adapt to the different solutions. I'm not sure if they will, but I, I agree with you that the problem and a distinct challenge being from legal system evidentiary. I'm not saying that there's a hierarchy within accountability, but if solutions are adapted international criminal justice then at least you have um that can be adopted elsewhere and it's not the standard of um system but it's, it's an international really interesting so what kind of standard would you be looking at like that would you be thinking about that um, I, so if we're talking about evidence i would say that the easy answer is the international criminal court yeah um just because it's kind of it's the highest international standard when it comes to evidence um evidentiary standards yeah. Uh, human rights, human rights uh, mechanism, a distinctly lower standard. Um, not that there is no standards, that's uh, not the, the, the case at all. But the, the standards are a little bit lower because when it's when we're talking about criminal justice, there's always this issue of you're not just pursuing a state, but you're pursuing um, an individual. And there is that bit higher. So if you can adopt this international criminal standard, then it's much easier for that to be adopted obviously kind of huge the way that domestic institutions respond to international law in general so great to talk to you today bethany and learn a bit more about the intersection between technology and human rights what i find most interesting about this topic is pilpg's documentation program is such an important example of how technology can be utilized by human rights documenters to ensure there's greater accountability for those who commit atrocities and human rights abuses. I think it really is such a interesting other side to the narrative of technology encroaching on human rights. 
because it presents human rights as actually, you know, of course, benefiting from technology. Cool. So right now for the Human Rights Documentation Solutions Project, we are in the final stages of choosing a technology. Okay. So in terms of what the future for the project, so um, for the next steps of the project, we will be partnering with Heridox, a partner from um, who we chose on the basis of the strength of the proposal of interest. And most likely we will be developing their tool, Awazi, which helps human rights documenters organize and analyze the information. It's an open source tool um, and a web-based platform. And we'll be co-designing the development with three um, civil society organizations who document in the field. Um, and that will be it for the next year or so. And then following that, we'll be engaging in training a larger group of human rights documenters. So right now, the, the discussions are very much more practical um, on what it is that we'll be doing and co-designing. Excellent. It sounds amazing. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.